The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thank you, and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Studying the battles at sea of the Civil War presents the problem that the battlefields are covered with water. But under that water, in many cases, lie the ships from which we can learn what actually happened 150 years ago. Our guest today, William N. Still, Jr., is not only the author of Iron Afloat, the story of the Civil War armor-clads, and other books of nautical history, but also the founder of the Program in Maritime History and Underwater Research at East Carolina University. We'll talk tonight with Bill Still about the Civil War at Sea on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this evening from the Civil War Talk Radio field headquarters on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not our usual haunt in the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. But even though I'm not in the office and not using the taxpayer's phone or computer this evening, I'll still say that tonight's show represents only the opinions of me and our guest, not those of ECU or the American Athletic Conference, the University of North Carolina, or any of its constituent institutions, or any of the classes they may teach, whether students actually show up or not. They're a 
veiled reference to the athletic scandal at our rivals down the road at Chapel Hill. Uh, it's one of those things you, on the one hand, feel a certain uh, schadenfreude for the, uh, the the flagship school being exposed as not doing what they should have been doing all these years, but really there's no room to feel good about it. It's a bad thing that... Um, uh, an academic scandal has taken place within the university system here and just makes me uh, hope that we've been diligent here at East Carolina and haven't been doing the same thing somewhere that no one knows about. I will say it's mystifying how one can have years of fake classes taking place at an institution without somebody in a responsible position knowing about it. Uh, I, I, I can't picture how that could happen here without at least finding out, without at least hearing about it and knowing it was going on. Anyway, uh, we're here to talk about the Civil War this evening, uh, handicapped by Civil War era technology. This has been one of those days that uh, you would make a situation comedy about of uh, running from one meeting to another, one class to another, uh, doing all kinds of things, interesting, useful things. Uh, got to teach. Uh, class, always fun, and had an opportunity to meet with two of the uh, Freedom Riders from 1961, two people who were uh, arrested and jailed in Mississippi for daring to ride a supposedly all-white interstate uh, Greyhound bus, and they are talking about their experiences. So, fascinating uh, way to spend a few minutes, but between all the meetings and all the uh, things that had to get done and then dash home and feed the dogs and walk them and do these things while uh, Mrs. Prokopovich, who ordinarily does pretty much everything that ought to get done around here, uh, is off on a field trip in South Carolina with her classes this week. Uh, That left me alone, and when I got home and tried to fire up Skype, it wouldn't recognize that I had an account with it. And then uh, one thing leads to another, and I had to turn the computer off. And that's a mistake, because that was 12 minutes ago, and it's still booting up. Uh, And I'm waiting, uh, staring at a blank screen. I know who our guest is, but I don't know who's on for the next six weeks by heart. You'd think I would by this time. Uh, I know we've got great shows coming up. I know I can go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and find out if my computer were actually working. It is, looking at the label, it's a Fisher-Price 1000, I think, is the, the actual brand of the computer. And it's it's going to uh, be a while. So, oh, there's a, the gray window. Skype has encountered a problem. It needs to close. We are sorry for the inconvenience. So maybe we'll get the computer fired up, and I'll be able to see all the perceptive and uh, challenging and, and innovative questions that I've prepared for our, our guests. But if not, we'll just wing it. We'll go with a blank screen and just make things up uh, as we go along. Uh, there will be great shows in the weeks ahead. I'll leave it at that, and we'll get right in and talk to our guest. Uh, he is William N. Still, Jr., retired professor of history and one of the founders of East Carolina University's program in maritime studies, uh, originally called Maritime History and Underwater Archaeology, or Underwater Research at one time, uh, now known as the Program in Maritime Studies. Uh, Bill Still is a giant in the field of uh, underwater 
uh, archaeology and history uh, interdisciplinary work, and it's a pleasure to uh, have him on the show. Bill, are you there? I'm here. Bill, well, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It, it, it's good to have you. You and I have been talking about doing this for at least four or five years now. We see each other on campus periodically, and I say, you've got to come and talk to us about the work you've done, and you agreed to do it, and then something happens. and uh, The stars are still uh, crossed. I, finally, we've got the show, and now I can't get the computer to work. Uh, nonetheless, uh, here we are. So that's how my idea is going. How, how are things going for you? Oh, very good. I'm still writing. Uh, even though I'm retired from university work, I still spend a great deal of time researching writing. Uh, that's that's good. I I was I've had this conversation with a number of folks on the show who uh, have retired, and and the almost universal observation is they end up busier uh, after retirement than before. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, it. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, that I've discovered, of course, is once you've retired then you no longer have to concentrate on your responsibilities of teaching, and you can concentrate on writing. So since I retired years ago, I've been able to do a good bit of research in writing. Now, I know among your recent books you've written on uh, the United States Navy in World War One, but I want to take us back to the uh, uh, Civil War era this evening and talk about some of your work there. Uh, but first, I'm, I'm curious to know the story of... East Carolina University's Maritime Studies Program. We had an event, uh, our, the, the annual Welcome Aboard Party back in September, and uh, you were there, and also Tim Runyon and Larry Babbitts and Brad Rogers. And I think it was the first time that all the directors of the program uh, were, were joined in, in one place to, to be yeah, that photographed was, and celebrated. That nice. uh, is, is that the first time that happened? To my knowledge, yes. I can't recall that we've been, other than, of course, uh, uh, academically, since uh, uh, Brad Rogers was a student of mine, and, and I, I guess to some degree I was responsible for bringing Dr. Runyon and, and Dr. Babbitts here. So, so there's a, a collection there, a bloodline. Uh, how did the program get started? What, what, what was the... Uh the impetus to uh, to organize some well, program that, that would study history and archaeology? Well, I'm not an underwater archaeologist. I am a historian, and uh, one of my students in the 1970s was uh, Gordon Watts, uh, who wrote uh, his master's thesis on the USS Monitor. But anyway, he went off to Florida uh, to work as an underwater, well, to get experience as an underwater archaeologist, Came back to North Carolina, persuaded the State Division of Archives and History to create a a, a unit of underwater archaeology, uh, which he headed. And then he came to me in 1979, as a matter of fact, and uh, wanted to hold a joint field school in which he would provide the uh, equipment expertise and I would provide the students and, and of course, uh, their uh, grades and things of this sort. So we held a field school in, in Bath, North Carolina, which is the oldest port in, in in the state going back to the beginning of the 18th century. And that was really the beginning of it. Uh, I became so 
uh, impressed with what you could do in something of this sort. On the other hand, the other thing was that I was kind of surprised at how little so-called underwater archaeologists understood history. In other words, they didn't uh, create, put the two together. What was the... uh, what was what were you supposed to accomplish with underwater archaeology? What were you supposed to contribute to history? So I uh, looked into it uh, very carefully, and and with the help of uh, of uh, Gordon Watts, then I went to the at that time Chancellor of Academic Affairs and suggested the idea of a program, of a graduate program, which he agreed. As a matter of fact, he called it a sexy idea. And so that was the beginning of it. In 1980, we uh, were approved for a graduate program, and it's been in effect since then. It's one of the things that surprised me as a uh, uh, a historian when when talking with some of the archaeologists that I've worked uh, at East Carolina or elsewhere, uh, that, as you say, Sometimes their focus is not at all on history; that they're they're interested in stuff no. and, yeah. and bringing it back, but they don't they don't go that, beyond that, that. Clearly, it's one of the problems. And in fact, their uh, their focus is on artifacts, on the physical remains, whereas historians are primarily interested in the, of course, uh, the written record. And what we tried, what I tried to do, and I think the others have as well, is fuse the two, put the two together, and uh, create a program in a, in where you could uh, fuse the uh, the idea of the physical remains providing significant contributions to to history. And I think that's still the uh, the focus of that program. It, it, I would agree with you there. It is really what, what makes it a unique program. I guess what surprises me most is that there haven't been more, uh, you know, other places trying to do the same thing, trying to create this interdisciplinary well, approach to uh, to history. Actually, there have, but the only one that has been successful is at Texas A&M University, and their emphasis is really on the... Uh, the Caribbean or the, the Mediterranean and Black Sea area. Um, but other universities have at various times tried, well, I say universities, institutions, have at various times tried to uh, put together such a, uh, a program with this sort. What they discovered, of course, is that uh, uh, it's a fairly expensive uh, program. Uh, you have to have equipment, uh, boats, you have to have dive equipment, you have to have search equipment such as magnetometers and side scan saws and all this sort of thing. And so, in, to be honest about it, these programs have simply, the other, in, in other universities, have uh, end up lasted. So it, it, it's, it's harder to get started than, than it may look like. When you started this, did you have the idea that this would contribute to Civil War era research? Well, yeah. Uh, quite obviously, and, and uh, being a, a southern institution, uh, and of course you have uh, a, a number of, of, of naval engagements in this state as well as in other states. And sure, uh, virtually from the beginning, we uh, were extremely interested in, in holding field schools and research projects on Civil War wrecks or Civil War remains. 
Do you recall the first one that the program did a field school on? Well, uh, yeah, we um, we did a, a field school, six weeks field school in Plymouth, North Carolina, where of course the Albemarle uh, fought uh, Union naval forces in April 1864, and uh, we did find uh, the remains of of, of two. Uh, Union vessels there and uh, investigated them uh, and uh, it was not an easy thing to do because uh, they were under debris uh, in a river that's uh, very uh, difficult to work in to say the least the Roanoke River Mm -hmm. but yeah that was the beginning we found things there and uh, uh, about a year later we did uh, a project down at Mobile Bay uh, and uh, Three of the vessels that we looked for down there were Civil War vessels, and uh, and you know we periodically have done other since then. We've done some work on the. Uh, I say we. You understand that I'm no longer, <laughs> of course, the <laughs> involved with the faculty there. But the uh, the underwater archaeologists there, the pro- the staff there, have done some work on the uh, Confederate ironclads uh, Raleigh and North Carolina in the Cape Fear River. Uh, at least two times. So, yeah, we the, the program has done a good bit of work on Civil War wrecks. What, just sort of abstract question, uh, what can you find from these wrecks that you can't get from documents? Well, first of all, you understand that uh, uh, the knowledge of Confederate vessels is, it's, is very uh, limited, to say the least. Uh, there were blueprints or plans of some of them, but not all of them. In fact, there were none of the uh, the two vessels in the Cape Fear River, the two ironclads. So what you can do, of course, is that you uh, you can, of course, uh, physically examine the, the the remains and come up with dimensions. You can uh, as to length and uh, depth and things of this sort. And you can also get a pretty good idea of why they were, uh, were destroyed or sunk. And the things of this sort you can learn from underwater archaeology. Well, we'll take a short break now and come back and talk more about uh, the, the connection of underwater archaeology and history, and in particular, uh, the Confederate effort to build an ironclad fleet. Our guest today is Bill Still, a retired professor from East Carolina University and co-founder of ECU's Program in Maritime Studies. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Bill Still. He is the founder, uh, co-founder of East Carolina University's program Time Studies, the author of Iron Afloat, the story of the Confederate armor clads. And we were just starting to talk about the uh, some of the Confederate ironclads that ECU researchers have uh, explored over the years. Uh, but we're also doing so uh, differently tonight than uh, other nights. I hope it sounds all right at your end. Uh, I'm using the old-fashioned telephone instead of uh, Skype and the computer. And uh, we're also able to uh, take a call this evening. So uh, this is not something we, we traditionally do on the show. Let's give it a try. Uh, is our caller, do we have a caller there? Hi, this is Dennis. Dennis, how are you? Great. I'm doing fine. First of all, you guys are having an interesting discussion. I'd just like to make a, a quick question. Sure. Okay. Uh, when you're examining the shipwrecks, Bill, uh, are you able to find any evidence of the uh, pump-off malfunction? Rarely. Uh, you can, if, for instance, that... Uh, Simply in action, you, you can usually find it. For instance, Albemarle, of course, was a result of Cushing's uh, mine or a torpedo which sunk the bottom. But rarely do you find that the the one of the North the North Carolina, which was the uh, ironclad uh, built in Wilmington, uh, it simply went down, sunk uh, in its moorings because the bottom rotted out, and you could you know you can't find much. Uh, remaining of that sort of thing. Uh, on the other hand, they, the CSS Huntley, you know, the uh, submarine that was recovered in Charleston Harbor, was in such good condition uh, and that they have been able to determine a great deal about that, including, of course, why the vessel actually uh, sunk. Uh, and uh, although I've had nothing really to do with that uh, that uh, that project, that what I've read about it indicates that uh, it, they found a, a significant amount of information about why it went down. Wow. 
So thank you for the call. Um, let's go back to the uh, uh, the Confederate armor clads that you were discussing uh, uh, a few minutes ago, Bill. Yeah. Uh, and and which you've written about in Iron Afloat. Uh, one of the points you make in this book is is how is what a shoestring effort the uh, uh, the Confederate Navy, uh, the Confederate ironclad. Uh, effort was how can you talk about that well during the war they actually laid down approximately 50 ironclads uh, only about half 23 of them were completed and commissioned uh, and they were all the way from Richmond Virginia all the way to Shreveport Louisiana in the various ports and in the, in the rivers uh, and Suggested, or at least in my theory, and uh, Aaron Afloat was that uh, they generally contributed to Confederate defense. They were not uh, <laughs> they were not very uh, impressive looking vessels. They were more like home built or something of this sort. Uh, and, and most historians have recognized this. But at the same time, they were effective. It didn't take much to be uh, involved in defending a, a river mouth, a river port, or a port for that matter. And rarely did they go out and challenge the Union fleet, uh, Union vessels. They did, of course, the Virginia, which is the, the prototype of Confederate ironclads, uh, did so, as you know, and, and when it went out and sunk the Cumberland and, and uh, Congress in March 1862, in uh, Hampton Roads, and uh, the the Albemarle did so to some degree in Plymouth, and and but other than a uh, an effort by the uh, by two Confederate ironclads in Charleston in January 1863 to go out and challenge the Union fleet, uh, and did so, but no vessels were sunk, and they eventually could not remain at sea. They simply went out to a seaworthy vessel. They were flat bottom, uh, uh, with very little keel, and frankly, they were not, as I said a minute ago, not very seaworthy. They couldn't have remained at sea for any length of time under any circumstance. So, in that regard, they were not effective. Uh, they were defensive vessels. They were designed primarily to defend the harbors, to defend the rivers and things of this sort. And in that regard, they were effective. Keep in mind that of the six ports, Confederate or Southern ports, that were still under Confederate control during the last six months of the war, two of them were taken from the land side, uh, like Savannah and uh, Charleston. Two of them were... Uh, taken as a result of pressure from uh, troops coming up from from the land, and only one Galveston never had a Confederate ironclad. The others did. So, you know, we tend to focus on the the shortcomings of these ships. You point out they're not particularly seaworthy. The Confederate ironclads are not able to to go out and challenge the the Union blockade in any no. meaningful uh, way. But, they couldn't have done it, and they really weren't designed to do so. Uh, General Beauregard did send two two of the ironclads, the Chicora and Palmetto State, out, as I said, in Charleston. Uh, but they couldn't remain at sea for any length of time. They went out and, and uh, challenged a couple of Union vessels, but afterwards they had to come back into Charleston. They had no choice. So they so really they, didn't break the blockade. Although no. Beauregard claimed they did, they really didn't. Mm-hmm. 
The the we had our guest last week, uh, Jamie Malinowski, was has written a book on uh, Cushing and the Albemarle, and we talked about that at some length. And that was it, that was one ironclad that did at least launch one offensive foray uh, downriver. To, but it, but again, it didn't get beyond the the bar. It didn't go out into the open ocean and, and no, attack not really. The, the Abel, uh, originally, the Albemarle and the Noose, which was its uh, sister ship, built up and near Kinston and, and uh, Seven Springs, which is Whitehall, North Carolina today, that they were to coordinate an attack against Union vessels in the uh, Noose River and retake New Bern. Hopefully, they would go, it would be a, a combined assault along with uh, troops of General Pickett. It just never took place because the Albemarle was, of course, as it went down into the Albemarle Sound, it was challenged by Union vessels, damaged, and they had to return to Plymouth. The noose never got out of the noose river. It simply, uh, the, the river was too shallow, and it, it was, uh, it, its depth was too great, uh, and it could never go downstream. Have, have you seen the, uh, the noose currently, the, the new building that they're housing it in? On the Hunley? Uh, no, the uh, the noose in uh, Kinston. They, oh, yeah, the noose. Have you had a chance uh, to see it yet? Yeah, the, uh, it, as I said, it's uh, the noose. It's a, it, a perfect example, I suppose, of the of the the difficulties of constructing ironclad vessels up shallow rivers, and because they never did by they, I mean. Confederate naval authorities never could actually figure out the problem of weight. Of, of, of the, once you, of course, they'd had no experience in armoring ships, uh, and the plates were iron plates of, of uh, four inches, generally speaking, four inches uh, laminated, two two inches of of, 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 of two laminated plates, and they simply were too heavy. Now, one thing that the, that, uh, the Confederate uh, naval constructor, John Porter, did to try to resolve that problem was to reduce the size of the, the gun box or casemate. Uh, if you've ever seen the picture of the Virginia mm-hmm. uh, and, and some of the earlier built ironclads, they had casemates or, or gun boxes that virtually covered most of the hull. Well, what he tried to do was to reduce the, the length of these uh, casemates, uh, and he did. In fact, and, and of course, what it did would be there would be fewer guns on board, but he, of course, came up with the idea of pivot guns where a gun could fire forward or to the side uh, and, and to the rear. And, and the, the later vessels all had gun boxes or casemates or shields, as they were called, that were considerably smaller in length than those of those who were built uh, uh, earlier in the war. But still, they had a problem. They never did quite understand. Uh, they just simply didn't have the understanding of the technology and the engineering to come up with a, a solution to the problem of weight uh, in those rivers. So the the later ships like the Noose and Albemarle have many fewer guns than the Virginia, but yeah. 
Uh, in effect, had, uh, the their firepower is really not and, that uh, much different since and, they can and swing the, it around. Uh, Albemarle had, uh, was actually supposed to have four guns, uh, mm-hmm. and it really uh, it just simply could, uh, could not handle anymore because of its small casemate. But since they, but by using the the idea of a single gun that could be pivoted to go out of different gun ports. Oh yeah, uh, then you don't. Gun, you could fire forward, or you could fire on either uh, either side. As a matter of fact, and and uh, they were effective uh, in that regard. Uh, but you know, it's as I said, it it really never worked. They did try toward the end of the war. The Confederates tried to come up with some idea of of uh, a monitor-type vessel. In, in Wilmington, they had a uh, under construction a vessel that had two octagonal-shaped casemates uh, that were similar to monitor-types in shape, but they did not, uh, uh, they did not turn anything of that sort. But uh, as I said a minute ago, they really never resolved the problem. Hmm. So, given their their limited industrial base, they're not going to win the war at sea by by building these kinds of ships. Um, what about other you know, innovations? You mentioned the Hunley briefly. Was there any likelihood that the Confederacy could have come up with enough some kind of secret weapons to to break the blockade? Uh, the, the 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 one that really interests me, and I think if they could have done something with it, it might well have affected the blockade with the Davids. The Davids were semi-submersibles. And the David, the one that that was successful, went out in Charleston Harbor and actually damaged uh, a Union vessel. Now, as a result of that, they'd started trying to build them all over the place, all the way around to Louisiana and up uh, up the Red River. They probably had, at least in my count, something like 25 under construction. Mm-hmm. And I still believe that, that they were kind of like the Italian human torpedoes of World War II or something of this sort, is that uh, they, could, they could have done some damage to blockaders, but none of them, uh, with the exception of the first one, none were completed. Now, the, so, the Hundley now, uh, mm-hmm. well, as you know, she... Uh, after uh, uh, torpedoing the Housatonic, uh, uh, she uh, simply sank going back to her home port. And uh, I, I just don't think that, uh, again, they, they knew enough about technology at that time and about, uh, 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 to have built a fleet or even a number of vessels of that sort. So, so that was not not going to be the con- Confederates' way out of the uh, uh, the naval dilemma they they find themselves in. Uh, yeah, the uh, what we're going to do is take another short break in just a, a minute. I'm going to interrupt here and say uh, the technology is gradually creeping back into my life, and I have the uh, schedule for the week ahead in front of me, so I'm going to take one minute and share that with our listeners, uh, that next week's guest will be Caroline Janey, author of Remembering the Civil War, Reunion and the Limits of Reconciliation, 
Uh, on November 12th, Michael Stevenson, Civil War in 3D, The Life and Death of the Soldier. November 19th, Leslie Gordon, A Broken Regiment, the 16th Connecticut's Civil War. Uh, no show on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, but on December 3rd, Nicole Etchison, A Generation at War, The Civil War Era in a Northern Community. And on December 10th, Stephen Cushman, Belligerent Muse, Five Northern Writers and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War. When we come back from the holidays on November, on January 14th, our guest will be uh, a friend of both of ours, Bill, Lawrence Babbitts. Uh, one of your successors as director of the Maritime Studies Program. He recently edited a book called From These Honored Dead, Historical Archaeology of the American Civil War. And we'll be talking about uh, the war on land and archaeology on that day. So those are shows coming up. Um, what we're going to do now is take a short break. We'll come back in just a minute or two and talk more about uh, the Civil War at Sea with our guest today, William N. Still, Jr. Bill Still is the author of Iron Afloat, the story of the Confederate armor clads, and we'll talk with him in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with William N. Still, Jr., uh, Professor Still is retired from the program in maritime studies at East Carolina University, a program that he helped to found uh, some 30 plus years ago. 
Uh, also, he's the author of numerous books. Uh, the one we're talking about right now is Iron Afloat, the story of the Confederate armor-clads. Uh, we've been talking about uh, what we can learn from these ships, about the limitations and successes of the Confederate ironclad uh, movement, their attempt to do this. We broke new ground on Civil War Talk Radio by taking a live caller for the first time in 10 years, and after an interesting initial question, turns out to be a crank call. Uh, I feel like, like we've accomplished something here that uh, uh, it would be one thing if, if the dedicated listeners of the show were calling in, uh, but to have people taking the time to uh, be silly with our show, I'm, I'm actually flattered. Uh, but enough of that. Um, so, Bill, you've written most recently, or at least I, I, I know this book is, is fairly recent. I don't know if it's your most current one, uh, on the, uh, the United States Navy in the First World War. Have you published since then? Uh, yeah, you know, in my, frankly, early career, I concentrated on Civil War for obvious mm-hmm. reasons, being a Mississippian and <laughs> having uh-huh. received my uh, Ph.D. during the centennial of the Civil War, I wrote books and articles on that. But in the last um, 20 years or more, 25 years, I've, I've evolved more into United States Navy. I really consider myself a naval historian more than a Civil War historian. Uh, I was in the Navy uh, in the 50s, and when I was on a board on an aircraft carrier, the the only thing you could do when operating at sea, if you didn't want to look at old movies on the hangar deck, were read. And I read everything they had in the uh, ship's library and also anything I could get a hold of. One of the books that uh, I read was a novel called By Bala and Arms by James Street, novelist James Street. It was about the ironclad Arkansas. And it was that, as much as anything else, that persuaded me to, when I went to graduate school, to uh, study uh, the Confederate Navy. Uh, and that's exactly what I did, of course, that it led to my, my dissertation on the construction and fitting out of ironclads. It led to iron upload and really a variety of other uh, works on the Confederate Navy. As far as World War I is concerned, uh, I started that uh, in, 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 in a sense that uh, while I was still Writing on the Civil War, I started research on World War One. Well, really, I started research on the U.S. Navy and European water simply because I served in the Sixth Fleet uh, for nearly two years, and that interested me. And so I wrote a, a book in 19, published in 1980, called United States Navy in the Old World uh, and the Near East from the uh, end of the Civil War to 1917 to World War One. Then I wrote a book called Crisis at Sea, uh, which uh, was the U.S. Navy in World War One, and I'm just I'm just finishing a book called uh, uh, Victory Without Peace, which has to do with the United States Navy in the uh, post World War One years, uh, and the fact that uh, we were intimately involved, deeply involved, and in, uh, trying to preserve peace and stability in Europe and the Near East. Uh, after World War One, so that's kind of how I evolved into that. Well, I'm I'm curious as you as you follow that evolution, the the period right after the Civil War strikes me as one of the most fascinating ones in terms of naval architecture and 
design because you, you've got the all the the developments of the Civil War era, the ironclads, uh, the beginnings of submersibles, the the rifled uh, artillery, the shell guns, and uh, you know the steam propulsion, screw propulsion, all, and and nobody knows what a warship is supposed to look like by 1865. They're as different as the Virginia and the Monitor and the the Davids that you mentioned. Well, um, yeah, that's correct. Uh, a so, Monitor, so, it obviously doesn't really look like a conventional uh, warship, to say the least. And that was, as far as the Union Navy was concerned, that was their uh, basic uh, warship uh, in the latter years of the Civil War. In fact, they built about 50 of them and put them in uh, Mothball in Philadelphia, many of them after the war. And, and some remain in commission. As a matter of fact, we had at least two monitor-type vessels that were still active in the in Spanish-American War. What happened, of course, was that we had so little experience in building modern warships uh, in the uh, post-Civil War years that we contracted with the, the, the British Navy, the British government, for uh, plans, blueprints, and even uh, the materials to build the first steel warships in the United States Navy, the so-called ABCD warships that were commissioned in the 1980s, uh, 1880s, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was from them that uh, we uh, began to build and learn how to build the modern warships that uh, uh, were a part of the fleet in the Spanish-American War and part of the, the Great White Fleet that went around the world early in the 20th century. And, of course, on into into the uh, World War One era. So you've really got a, a, a transitional phase there after the Civil War, where where you go from the the, the ships that begin the war, 1861, you know, traditional sailing ships like you know yeah, Minnesota or the Cumberland, and yeah, it's, within ten years you've got something completely different. It's kind of interesting that uh, uh, we just didn't know anything. To amount to anything about modern warships. In fact, we didn't have the industrial cap capability of building modern warships uh, until the, the, the government, the United States government, actually agreed to give Bethlehem uh, Steel a, a monopoly on providing the, the steel plates and things of the sort that went into a modern ship. This came, of course, after the, uh, they built the ABCD warships. But the only reason that Bethlehem was willing to do it was because, of course, it was heavily subsidized by the United States government. Do you see any continuities between the Civil War and the First World War, or, or is just has, has naval warfare changed completely in, over that 50-year span? Uh, it really, look, it little change occurred. Now. Uh, it, the Civil War was, of course, uh, the blockade was extremely important, as we all know, uh, although I still maintain that it was not as tight as so many historians have uh, suggested that it was, uh, as some of my students uh, uh, discovered in, in writing about the blockade, that uh, that it was still, uh, blockade runners were still running in, getting in and out of the, the various ports right up to the end. And, of course, World War I, the British established a blockade over Germany, and historians today, uh, particularly British historians, uh, believe very strongly that it was a blockade that ultimately resulted in the uh, defeat of Germany and Austria-Hungary. 
but of course, the the tactics of the blockade are so different. By then, I mean it's a very distant blockade at the end oh, of yeah. the North oh, Sea. Oh yeah, there was yeah. not any the same. As a matter of fact, the uh, uh, the the blockade in the Civil War was with a fairly close in blockade. They had like three lines of blockaders by the end of the war. Uh, that uh, and whereas in World War One it was mostly a distant blockade, uh, but the the idea, the concept, the uh, strategy was basically the same. Hmm. So would I guess there's a variation of what I asked earlier, but I'll, I'll try same same thought. Um, if if you were in charge of the southern Navy in 1861, uh, with hindsight, knowing what what we know, uh, is there anything that that could have uh, turned the tide uh, at sea for the Confederate Navy? No. Uh, no. You may remember that I uh, was co-author of a book called "Why the South Lost the Civil War." Yes, and uh, and my responsibility there were four of us who wrote the book, and my responsibility was. The Navy, obviously, and the economic side, and uh, the consensus was, and still is, that there was nothing that we could have done by we. I mean, the, the, the Confederates. I shouldn't say we, but the Confederates could have done to have to turn the tide. And it was not, it was not battles. So much emphasis is put on battles, the Gettysburg or Vicksburg, the turn of the tide, things of this sort. Mm-hmm. And it was not. Altogether, on the the fact that the Union had overwhelming resources compared to the South, although I think this has been exaggerated as well, it was frankly a, a whole complex, a whole variety of of, of factors that ultimately uh, resulted in Confederate defeat. Uh, one of the things that we uh, stressed in why the South lost the Civil War was the uh, the problem of morale. Uh, that the morale, first of all, Confederate nationalism was never that strong. And in time, it eroded as morale eroded. And by the end of 1863, there was something between four and 500,000 Confederate soldiers on theoretically uh, there, but in reality, it was probably somewhere around 250,000, and so many had deserted and gone. And by the time of Appomattox, uh, when Lee surrendered, he surrendered something like 90,000 on, on the books, but he only had about 30,000 there. They'd either deserted or simply gone home. The morale was just not there any longer. The will to fight was gone. So I don't think that we just the South just never had the resources to to build a a fleet of warships capable of challenging the Union blockade. By the end of the Civil War, the United States Navy made up seven hundred odd vessels. Uh, the Confederates. Altogether, that is not at one time, but throughout mm-hmm. the war, never had. They built about a hundred. Well, not even built. They had in commission about a hundred and fifty vessels at various times, but nowhere near did they have enough. Of course, that will enable them to challenge the Union Navy. 
Now, they did have one success, which was uh, in, in commerce rating, in driving the Union Merchant Marine into yeah, hiding. Well, that's true. They were very effective, but uh, again, uh, not enough to make any difference. Uh, the Alabama, of course, uh, sunk 66 Union, vessel, Union Merchant Vessels. Uh, and it did drive up insurance rates as far as uh, uh, cargo vessels or co- commercial vessels were concerned. But, and, and the other raiders, of course, were not as successful, to some degree successful, but not to the degree that it made any difference in the outcome of the war. So, really, the, the Confederate effort, is, as creative and uh, resourceful as it was, really you know, was not going to, to make that difference ultimately. Um, we just have a, a minute or so left. Quick question. Are you working on uh, a, a new book right now, working on a project, or just well, enjoying I life? Well, I mentioned the post-World War I book. I've got another book on uh, called, uh, uh, called Maritime North Carolina History of Shipbuilding in North yeah. Carolina that uh, is being considered for publication right now. And, yeah, uh, and yeah. I... Still doing some things on the Civil War. I've got a, an article I'm going to send out pretty soon on the Ladies' Gunboats Associations and how significant uh-huh. they were in providing funds for building not only ironclads but wooden vessels as well. So, yeah, I'm still doing work. Well, it sounds fascinating. We'll look forward to reading that and, and your other work. And uh, listeners, uh who I'm sure are already familiar with uh, some of the classics that we've talked about tonight, uh, Iron Afloat, the story of the Confederate ironclads. Uh, You mentioned uh, why the South lost the Civil War, uh, another classic work of which you were one of the editors. uh, And finally, uh, want to recognize you again for your work in co-founding East Carolina University's Maritime Studies Program, which continues today to do uh, not groundbreaking work, water, uh, uh, because it's underwater, but uh, important work in in nautical archaeology uh, as well as history. Uh, So, Bill, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I'm I'm glad we finally got this organized and uh, look forward to seeing you at our house or uh, somewhere else along the road. I do, too. Thank you again very much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.